Welcome to News and Brews. I'm Mike Heslin. And I'm Errol Yabake. And there's sort of a, a strange common thread that runs through a bunch of our stories this week, Errol. And that is the country of Burkina Faso. Now, yes. one one thing that we'll cover is the coup in Burkina Faso that happened that is, in the last that week. So that thing. one makes sense. Yes. But what if I told you that there's also a connection there uh, to Tucker Carlson's weird obsession with the attractiveness of the cartoon M&M's characters. <laughs> it's true, people. It's true. And then what if we also told you that there's a strong connection there to Russia's ongoing threats toward Ukraine? And what if we also told you that our main story this week, inflation, yeah, has nothing to do with it. Burkina Faso. That has nothing to do with Burkina Faso. But like, weirdly, lots of Burkina Faso love and mentions uh, in the episode this week. Don't let that uh, turn you off, listeners. Uh, <laughs> this was a really uh, fun episode to talk about, even though, as always, some of the topics were a little heavy. Uh, but I feel like we uh, we really got into the meat of things this week. Absolutely, this is a good one, Mike. So I hope everyone enjoys. Hey, Errol. Hey, Mike. Good to see you. Great to see you. Great Happy to be Tuesday. talking about another week of news. Yeah, this is why we started this thing, right? That's exactly right. What uh, what's the news? What's the news with you? You know, not too much going on. Um, kids are both back in school, so that's that's good. Although, then we randomly got this text message that I'm sure you got too from DCPS saying that schools are closed on Wednesday because it's like the end of the term or something. So yeah. What's, what's your Wednesday solution? You're looking at them. (laughs) (laughs) We're, we're trying out a a one day dance camp. A one day dance camp. Sounds amazing. Can I go? You know, if if you got a PCR test in the last three days, send it on in. We'll see. (laughs) That's amazing. Both kids are just just the older no one. no just just uh the older one who's who's in pre-k uh the younger one's still in daycare amazing yeah that's fun uh my day will be decidedly less fun and probably more full of elmo <laughs> that's pretty fun though yeah as long as i can't hear it in the back i feel like a lot of the actors on the international stage at this moment could benefit pretty seriously from some elmo lessons yeah Maybe he did get in a fight with a rock a couple weekends ago. So, you know, I missed that. Yeah. That was sort of in our uh, end of year interregnum. Uh, We didn't really get to cover that, which is a bummer because that was a great story. Yeah, it was, it was a good story. Maybe we'll come back to it later, but in the meantime, do you have a, uh, an adult beverage that you're working with? I do. So last year I took us back to the eighties this year, we're squarely in the nineties with the 1996 West Coast IPA from Hysteria Brewing Company out of Columbia, okay. Maryland. And the, the most important thing to know about this beer is that the can is drawn in the style of Rocco's Modern Life. Yes. For any 90s kids out there, uh, that is all you really need to know. And then it sort of doesn't matter what's inside. I'm nodding as if I know what that is. Um, it's a fun beer can though. And I do like how two weeks in a row, you've got this like nineties television theme. Totally. And both out of Columbia, out of Columbia, Maryland. So coming in strong. Mecca of beers, Columbia, Maryland. Well, I'm just going straight for the scotch this week. 
Um, ah, brilliant. I've got a lagavulin in 16 for reasons that I will explain when we get to spicy nuggets, but um, I'll just say we've got to start doing this in person. Yeah. We do because you want my Lagavulin 16. I Seeing the Lagavulin in your hand is just <laughs> is is very inspirational to me. Good. Um, and I'm still looking forward to the uh, recording on an island version of News and Brews 2022. Love it. All right, should we get started with the first round? Let's do it. In these troubled times, there was really just one story we could lead with tonight, and that, of course, is possible friend of the show definite inspiration for the puffy-faced bergens and the trolls movies tucker carlson <laughs> specifically his utter outrage that some of the cartoon mascots for m&m's candy are becoming in his view slightly less fuckable <laughs> we can't make this up so let's play a clip m&m's the candy company has just announced that it's redesigning its cartoon characters to be more gender inclusive the green M&M you will notice is no longer wearing sexy boots. Now she's wearing sensible sneakers. Why the change? Well, according to M&Ms, quote, we all win when we see more women in leading roles because leading women do not wear sexy boots. Leading women wear frumpy shoes. The frumpier, the better. That's the rule. The other big change is that the brown M&M has, quote, transitioned from high stilettos to lower block heels, also less sexy. That's progress. M&Ms will not be satisfied until every last cartoon character is deeply unappealing and totally androgynous. Until the moment you wouldn't want to have a drink with any one of them. That's the goal. When you're totally turned off, we've achieved equity. They've won. <laughs> I think my favorite part of this clip was when he uses uh, you wouldn't want to have a drink with them as code for like wanting to actually fuck this cartoon candy. Yeah, the, the sexual innuendo, innuendo parts were really, really creepy. I, I think my favorite parts were just his obsession with types of shoes and how he says sexy boots like multiple times in this clip is just um, just great. <laughs> the formerly sexy boots that he's just pining for is, is perfect. I, I think just overall, what a breath of fresh air this clip is. It's, it's such a callback to a time when the culture wars were about stupid bullshit instead of like stealing elections and banning immigrants. Uh, just low stakes, patently absurd, delightful. Yeah, like tan suits. Remember tan suit gate? Like it's just ah, it was so a good. simpler time. So I have lots of completely unrelated thoughts about vile, baby-faced, anti-immigration crusaders with chips on their fake everyman shoulders, who would be happy to explain to you in very simple male terms why they are not mansplaining why Eminem should wear sexy boots and how, you know, they're all about freedom as long as it comports to their narrow worldview. So I, I have lots of completely unrelated thoughts on that, but I'll keep them to myself for now. You're talking about a year ago when Tucker Carlson basically ran the same bit about Lola Bunny in the new Space Jam movie. I can I tell. I totally missed that. Did he re actually do that? Yeah, so they they like uh, decreased the size of Lola Bunny's breasts for the reboot of the Space Jam movie, and there was a similar uproar over it. I don't know what it is with like the cartoon characters. It's very unsettling, actually, when you go like even super half creepy. a layer deep. Like Tucker, I don't like you, but like word of advice, just stop. One other take on this: 
uh, and this has to do with the Mars company. They're looking for some kudos here, trying to like be on Team Woke. Team Woke, uh, yeah. If you go to their corporate website, the top feature is is this story uh, about their changing of the cartoon characters <laughs> under the heading, how M&Ms is creating a more inclusive world. A more inclusive world. Just so so we'll, we'll forgive the brand standard that allows the phrase M&Ms is. Uh, we'll even forgive the point of view, which is almost as absurd as Tucker Carlson's reaction to it. But the point of view that says changing the shoes on a cartoon piece of candy is doing anything to or for the world. Yeah, I'm with uh, you. What we won't forgive is that in 2021, a human rights group representing eight citizens of Mali brought a lawsuit against Mars and other chocolate companies alleging that they the, these eight individuals were trafficked to the Ivory Coast as children and forced to harvest cocoa. Yeah. That's... And this is not not an isolated incident. So Ivory Coast uh, produces 40% of the world's cocoa. And according to a 2020 report from the University of Chicago, 1.56 million children are currently harvesting cocoa there and in the surrounding countries. So let's keep our ears open for the same level of outrage over child slavery that we're seeing over cartoon sneakers. Uh, but I will not hold my breath. Let's also stay for a second in West Africa, where um, both... Cote d'Ivoire and Mali border a country called Burkina Faso, where there was yet another coup. The I believe it was yesterday. We're recording Tuesday night, and I believe this was Monday. Honestly, West Africa is a bit of a mess. So basically, the, the democratically elected government of Burkina Faso fell to a military coup. The reason for the coup that ousted President Roque Cabore was ostensibly his inability to control the growing threat of militant violence. ISIS, Al-Qaeda, they all have affiliate groups in and around Burkina Faso. And, and the military officer who was actually on TV announcing that the coup happened, said that the takeover was in response to the quote-unquote exasperation of the people. And it's actually not that, probably not that far off from the truth, not to validate the military coup. Uh, I'm not in favor of overturning uh, democratically elected governments uh, violently. We should do that at the ballot box. But, you know, I, there have been longstanding gripes with this with this government that I'll get into in a second. But it's, it's worth sort of taking a second to think regionally. You mentioned Mali in the, in the Mars story. Mali suffered two coups recently, just in the last couple of years. There's definite sort of Islamic extremist elements in there in that country. They're mm -hmm. very present in Burkina Faso as well. And, you know, you and I have griped about schools being closed for this and the other. Schools are closed across Burkina Faso because it's not safe for kids to go to school, um, including in Ouagadougou, the, the capital. I mean, the kids are just home, which uh, is, is really, as a parent, is really frightening to, to think about. Um, and I mean, I think, I think we're all a little bit more intimately familiar with the implications than we would have been two years ago, but like, that's a whole generation of kids who are missing out on education, on skill building, on, on socialization, on everything. Yeah. And, and I think that's tragic on a whole nother level. Um, so Burkina's in, in a bad place. Um, and, and we're before the coup, there've been months of anti-government protests, mainly they, they're sort of started in probably 2020, early 2021, but they really ramped up. There was a big militant attack in, um, I think it was June, 2021. 
in a northern mm-hmm. town that ended up killing 100 people. And then there was another attack in November that ended up killing 20 or 30 soldiers. It's sort of like just violence is out of control. You know, over 2,000 people have died and, and a million and a half people have been forcibly displaced from their homes. Um, so basically, no one has confidence that the government could provide basic protection. So, you know, the military, I guess, saw an opportunity and, and maybe thought that they were the better solution to, to provide security. So uh, just to put this in a little bit of context, it's the fourth military coup in the past 17 months in West Africa. I mentioned the two in Mali. There's one also in Guinea. If you add Chad and Sudan to that list, not West Africa, but kind of in the neighborhood, um, not to mention the coup attempt in Niger, which also borders Burkina Faso in 2021, things are definitely not trending in the right direction across the region. Yeah, so that's like one out of every nine countries on the continent of Africa has had a coup since the start of the pandemic. Good math. Wild. Yeah, it's it's not it's not great. Um, and then, you know, like the pandemic is going to last longer in in sub-Saharan Africa than it is elsewhere. If you look at the vaccination yeah. rates globally, I mean they're they're falling far behind. So, I think it's just um, you know lots more attention needs to be put on on these places because like you said it's not just kids being out of school right now but it's it's all these sorts of instability and threats are going to have generational impacts well let's follow up on a story we covered last week uh this feels like it happened about a million years ago now but as we record this on tuesday night it's been all of 10 days since a 44 year old british man with family ties to pakistan held four people hostage for 10 hours inside congregation beth israel synagogue in Colleyville, Texas. Yep. The FBI stated early on that the attack was not motivated by anti-Semitism, though it did appear from the beginning that the motive had at least some social or political dimension, so it fit the definition of terrorism. I was, I when, was, I was interested in that. Like, it, it seemed premature for the FBI to come out and like speak so definitively. I, I'm guessing I'm getting ahead of you in the story, but it well, was. It, weird. it turns out it was. It was premature, and, and okay. The, FBI Director Christopher Wray had a call, a public uh, kind of conference call earlier this week with the Anti-Defamation League and others where he walked that back yeah. pretty forcefully. As of last week, when we discussed this, it was too early based on the information we had to say whether this was an attack based on hatred and anti-Semitism, like, uh, like the Tree of Life synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh had been, right. or the Emanuel AME Church shooting in Charleston, or whether it was a deranged act by an unwell person with no clear agenda like the the fox news christmas tree fire no you're wrong mike that that was that was not a deranged person with no clear agenda (laughs) sure sure you you go go call uh tucker carlson about that one (laughs) in 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 the last week we've learned more and uh, i thought it was important to update on that and clarify because while the attacker's goal wasn't explicitly to kill jews it was undoubtedly an anti-semitic attack had to have been so Congregation Beth Israel is the closest synagogue to a facility called FMC Carswell, which is a federal women's prison in Fort Worth. One of the prisoners there is a woman named Afia Siddiqui, who was born in Karachi, Pakistan, holds a bachelor's from MIT and a PhD in neuroscience from Brandeis. And later, after she got those degrees, became a courier and financier for Al-Qaeda. Oh, this, we talked about her last week. But I think it's, yeah. it's worth providing a little bit of context. 
She was nicknamed Lady Al-Qaeda by several media organizations and is the only woman to have ever made the FBI's seeking information terrorism list, which is like their 10 most wanted, but just for terrorists. She was eventually arrested in Afghanistan in 2008. And while in custody, she allegedly shot someone from the FBI or U.S. military with their own gun or, or tried to, for which she was convicted in 2010 and sentenced to 86 years in prison. Interesting. Yeah, when I was looking into this last week, it was all the news was about like her legal team that was like, she's falsely accused, you know, she needs to be out. Um, I'm hearing a different story. So, well, as we know, and, and I'll just put it succinctly, the war on terror was rife with moral and factual shades of gray. This is true, especially in the case of Afia Siddiqui. There are open questions about whether she was in hiding or had been kidnapped with her children for years before she was arrested. There are three wildly different accounts about what happened in that interrogation room when she allegedly shot at U.S. personnel before being shot herself. Mm. Uh, There's one from her, there's one from the U.S. personnel, and then there's another from the Afghan security uh, personnel who are there. And to this day in Pakistan, you have her case being a real flashpoint. Uh, Siddiqui has become sort of a folk hero. Her conviction sparked nationwide protests, Mm. accusations of anti-Islam sentiment in the U.S. Uh, Islamic State actually tried twice to trade prisoners for her unsuccessfully. While there have been other leaders in Pakistan and some members even of her own family who have dismissed that level of support as unjustified nationalistic fervor. It's interesting that that Islamic State was pushing because you said she was Lady Al-Qaeda. Yeah. Those two groups don't like each other. Not anymore, but who started Islamic State? It was former Al-Qaeda people, right? She was, she was arrested in 2008. You're right. This was, this was pre-Islamic State, essentially. Yeah. So fast forward to 10 days ago, and Afia Siddiqui's case was the motivation for the Beth Israel attacker. But then why attack a synagogue? Right. right? She's being held in a federal prison. So this is where the deeper anti-Semitism comes in. The attacker believed two things. Number one, that the U.S. only cares about Jewish lives, and so taking hostages at a synagogue would give him leverage to get Siddiqui released. Two, that there are other Jewish people somewhere in the country who control those decisions about things like who goes to jail and stays in jail. Uh, His goal during the attack, according to the rabbi, was uh, to get on the phone with the quote-unquote chief rabbi of America, who he thought was like a specific rabbi in New York. Interesting. So he was, and, it was like, everything is true here. Like he was deranged, but also like his derangement manifested in like very real stuff that comes off of very real dark parts of the internet. Well, except that I think derangement suggests um, sort of a spontaneous or um, disconnected arising of ideas. This particular set of beliefs has a very long, very widespread and very nefarious history. So Rabbi Charlie Citron Walker, who's the leader of Congregation Beth Israel, he was also one of the hostages and he was instrumental in orchestrating their escape, described it as protocols of the elders of Zion style anti-Semitism. So it's basically this core belief that there is a secret cabal of Jews controlling the world and pulling all the strings. And that is by no means an an isolated belief, right? That sort of underlies uh, the history of anti-Semitism going back centuries. As a Jew, my take on this, I'll just say, wouldn't it be nice? I've been Jewish for 35 years, Errol. I've never once been exposed to or benefited from the secret cabal pulling the strings. Where's my cabal? Where's my strings? 
Uh, I mean, you're half of news and brews, so maybe there's like a half news and you can be like the bruise cabal. (laughs) We need like the uh, evil secret cabal bump. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think it's going to happen for you, Mike. I'm I'm sorry to to bring you down. Still waiting. One thing that we're still waiting for also is uh, Russia to invade Ukraine. So Hmm. as of recording, that hasn't happened yet. It's sort of on everyone's mind. It's on the above the fold headlines on pretty much every paper that covers international news. And so just maybe what I can do is cover a couple of what we've discussed in previous weeks, talk about what happened this week, and then, you know, provide some color commentary. So several things haven't changed. Russia still has a ton of troops amassed at Ukraine's border. Mm -hmm. Ukraine estimates this at 127,000, which is like, I think technically a shit ton of troops. Um, I'm not sure what the sort of metric. That's That's the metric unit, yeah. The metric unit, the Eastern European metric unit, the Orthodox metric unit. <laughs> Russia still wants guarantees on NATO expansion to include Ukraine, but not limited to Ukraine. They just don't want NATO to be any bigger because they know that the expansion of NATO will inevitably include other countries that border them, Georgia, et cetera. On the flip side, US and Europeans still don't want Russia to invade Ukraine. And Ukrainian officials are still like, chill out comrades. We've been under threat of invasion from Russia since we declared independence in 1991. So that's been happening. Not least that they got invaded by Russia eight years ago, and it's been ongoing since then. Yes. I'll talk about that in a little bit, that it's it's not, we've talked about this before in the podcast too. I mean, Russia sort of doesn't agree that that was an invasion. They think, you know, they're calling that like an organic, um, you know, movement of separatists or whatever, whatever they're calling it and whatever the result, they've given Russian citizenship to those people in Crimea and, and other separatists, Donetsk and some other places. So that's a really actually a very interesting part of the story because people basically in my Twitter feed, jumping to the analysis a little bit here, like people in my Twitter feed and my networks are like, they're not talking about will an invasion happen. They're talking about when and how. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I've seen talked about is, so, so Russia has, whether it's Chechnya or Crimea or you know any number of things for the past several decades, they don't just like send tanks in, you know, be like, we're here to invade. They basically manufacture a crisis that they then have to mm-hmm. respond to. Right. It could be an ecological crisis, like whatever. And so by them granting citizenship to a bunch of these Ukrainians in, East, in the sort of separatist, you know, basically the places that Russia annexed, they've yeah. given all these former Ukrainian citizens Russian citizenships. So if anything happens to those people perceived or real, then Russia is saying like, we will respond. There was some quote about like a dog barks, a wolf bites which is like the most Russian quote you've ever heard. Uh, (laughs) There has actually been movement since last week, though. So I didn't want to just recap. There there has significant stuff has happened this week. So first of all, President Biden held a press conference. He has not done a lot of these. Um, He held a press conference and talked about um, Ukraine a bit. And uh, sort of there was some uproar from the interwebs and commentators about when he was like, well, if there's only a minor incursion, 
then we'll have to be, you know, we'll have to see what the response is going to be. And so everybody was like, minor encouragement. Yeah, he shouldn't have said that. That's definitely true. It also reflects the reality that you mentioned a moment ago, which is that the conversation is not really about whether, but about when and how much. Yeah. So he's basically saying the quiet, like presidential briefing part out loud. Not that he was like giving away state secrets. It's just like, that's obviously the shrewd calculus that people are going through right now. Well, and there, there was an article, I think it was in the Times, about how this particular crisis has been negotiated more in public than almost any major crisis in history. Yeah. So you have, you know, Biden saying that publicly, you have the UK coming out over the weekend and saying that uh, Russia is planning to uh, already grooming Ukrainian politicians to sort of step in as a pro Kremlin regime, if and when an invasion happens and and sort of exposing parts of the false flag operation that they were planning Mm. to use as pretext for an invasion, which kind of cuts them off from that justification. And, and you have sort of more scenarios being thrown out, right? The U.S. very publicly announcing that the, the types of th- sanctions they're considering, the right. numbers of troops they have on alert, the number of troops they're considering relocating to the Baltics, right? So it's all happening sort of out in the open, which in a sense could be a good thing. Certainly for podcast hosts, it's a, a positive, but it, it, it also sort of limits the room for maneuvering uh, for, for anyone negotiating, right? If, if things are out there and subject to public opinion and subject to the passions of, of all interested parties at the same time, um, it's just much harder to find that middle ground. Yeah, I mean, it remains to be seen how much Vladimir Putin cares about all of that. The fact that mm-hmm. he's probably enjoying being in the spotlight, that, you know, Russia's stance has been that it's the U.S. that's escalating. They're not doing anything. Look, we're just doing military drills with 127,000 people on the Ukrainian border. We're not doing anything. And, and we're um, in Belarus. And we're, you know, we're sending folks to Belarus. And I'm sure there's some on the way, if not already in Moldova. And, you know, there's mm-hmm. all sorts of fun stuff going on. A couple more things that happened this week. The embassy, the U.S. embassy, ordered all uh, family members of U.S. embassy personnel to leave, which is a pretty big signal that there's that things are not trending in the right direction. I, you know, it's worth stating that the State Department is a notoriously risk-averse place, and yep. so you know, it doesn't mean that things are imminent. It just means that they have sort of credible intel that the threat is is like legit. Um, and there's probably some threshold of, of threat that they're like, okay, yeah, people need to leave now. I would say the last thing is there's this lingering concern that there's some European countries, mainly Germany, that will like kind of be wishy-washy if there's a need to have a collective response on this, um, in part because Germany has this you know, huge interest in oil and gas from Russia, uh, including the Nord, to the Nord Stream pipeline that we talked about last week. You saw this week an effort by the U.S. to kind of shore up oil and gas support for Germany and other European states that might get cut off from Russia in the event of some sort of conflict. So you're starting to see like some of the economic. You you did see a really interesting, uh, really interesting piece of evidence for that tension with Germany, where when the U.K. sent supplies to the Ukrainian military, their plane with all the supplies on it flew around German airspace. Mm. And it was, it was sort of a a very um, just clear evidence that there's, there's a little bit of 
tension, I think, among the, the Western allies. Now, everyone downplayed it uh, in, in public. But again, this whole negotiation being carried out in public, right? the fact that we even knew that that plane was flying with supplies when it was and could see the path of the flight like this, this is not how things were done in the Cold War. It's, you know, you say that, but this is, I, and I agree, but this all kind of feels a little bit like kind of high stakes chicken to me um, that's playing out very publicly. And, and at some point, like, I wonder how much of the political or, or geopolitical or diplomatic conversation is about like giving both sides a graceful out, like a graceful way of standing down. Because there's there's so much talk about deterrence and you know military troop positioning and are we going to do this in response to that, but like I, I don't think it I don't think Val, Vladimir Putin thinks that it will like in the long term benefit him to antagonize literally every country in the world except for Burkina Faso, which I'll talk about in a second, by, or to try to occupy invading. a country that's the size in terms of geography and population of Afghanistan. Yeah, it w- which is not an easy thing. Um, yeah. Certainly, I mean, there are cultural and historic ties between those two countries, but it's not that's not going to be an easy thing. I mentioned Burkina Faso, tie back to previous story as part of the coup, and this was a really interesting dynamic, Mike. We haven't talked about Russian presence in Africa, but it's actually mm-hmm. a pretty real thing, both like formal presence, diplomatic, and even sometimes military advisors, et cetera. But then there's this, there are these private militias, um, essentially private militaries, uh, the most famous of which is called the the Wagner Group. And they've been in Mali, they've been in Central African Republic, kind of like fighting the Islamic insurgency at the invitation of some of those leaders. And so what was really interesting as part of the Burkina Faso protests and and celebrations on the street after this military coup, there was sort of like a no to France. Burkina Faso was called Upper Volta during the colonial times, and it was a French colony. And so they've had strong historical ties, you know, daily flights, et cetera, et cetera. But like France is being seen as like not having solved their problems. And so there's actually a bunch of like Russian flags that were on the streets and, and like people being like, come help us with our insurgency, Russia. So, um, you know, things must be bad if they're asking uncle Vlad for, for help giving everything he else, uh, he has going on right now. Counterpoint to that. I couldn't tell you the difference between a Russian and a French flag. I mean, similar colors, different configuration. (laughs) (laughs) The oil and gas is a big deal, right? What from the perspective of our allies, most especially Germany, but but all of Europe. I mean, Europe gets something like a third of its energy supplies, natural gas, especially from Russia. Um, that that's a big deal. They're they're already facing inflation, as as we will talk about uh, in a few minutes. Um, and so, for the U.S. to be able to provide some relief on that, I think is a big deal. I also, much as I like, I think most Americans don't have any desire to see us get into a war right now. I do think it's a good idea for the U.S. to send or at least threaten sending troops to the region. I just think we have to show that we are willing to escalate. This is like classic art of war stuff. In order to make the enemy uh, back down, they have to think that the costs of escalating are greater than, than the alternatives. Um, and so we, we have to, even, even if that's not our goal, we have to show that we are willing to impose really significant costs and not just 
in terms of economic sanctions on Russia if they show aggression here. Which, which is what you're seeing. I mean, the, the Biden administration has, is certainly considering sending thousands of troops. I've seen 5,000, I've seen 8,500, but it's also yeah. artillery and, and warships. Now, not to Ukraine. No, no American troops are getting deployed to U- Ukraine at, at the moment. Um, but there are Baltic and European NATO ally states that are all around that region. Um, that I'm sure will be uh, high on the list of places that will be getting those assets. And with those assets comes a lot of sort of on the ground technology and intelligence. And so I, I agree with you, Mike, and I think that that's, that's certainly where we are in this um, sort of potential conflict and uncertainty. This story is not going away. I think we'll, we'll probably focus on this as a main story, maybe even with an interview next week. The, the One of the latest updates is that apparently Xi Jinping has asked Vladimir Putin not to invade during the Olympics. So those start on February 4th in just a couple of weeks, uh, I guess next week, maybe. Anyway, we'll, we'll be keeping an eye on this. Um, and not not to, to not invade, just like, yo, Vlad, don't do it while we're trying to get the world's attention away from Xinjiang. Right. Well, or... Or it's all just a ruse, and they're gonna they're gonna hit uh, Ukraine and Taiwan together during those Olympics. So who knows? Jeez, oh, diversionary tactics. Anyways, you mentioned inflation. I want to hear what you have to say about inflation. Let's get to our main story. So we last talked about this way back in 2021 when inflation was starting to run at five six percent, and the Fed somehow was still pumping massive amounts of liquidity into the economy both by keeping interest rates near zero and by buying bonds on the public market to the tune of $100 billion a month. At that point, we said a couple of things. Number one, to watch not just the absolute level of inflation, but whether it accelerates or decelerates. So look at the month over month rate and look at whether that five, 6% is getting bigger or smaller on an annual basis. Number two, we said the Fed really needed to wake up and speed up its tightening, uh, tightening of policy. Since then, a few things have happened. Number one, the Fed released the minutes from its December meeting. So the way the Fed uh, conducts public communication around their meetings is that they uh, they have the meeting over two days. At the end of the meeting, they put out basically a press release, a statement from the Federal Open Market Committee, which is their policymaking body uh, that sort of has the, the gist of what they want to communicate. And then the following month, they released the full minutes of the meeting. So the public can basically see everything that was discussed, what the what the back and forth was behind that statement that they put out. And the point of that is just to have like a less of a market making impact, right? Transparency without, uh, right, without uh, spooking the markets or, right. or causing unintended um, uh, disruption, volatility. Gotcha. So those meetings from the December, those minutes from the December meeting acknowledged that inflation would be higher than expected in the coming months and that they would need to dial back bond purchases more quickly than they had planned. So news and brews bump to that one. Though they are still planning to buy $90 billion of bonds this month and $60 billion next month. So it's not nothing. I could go on about these minutes. There was actually a lot in there and I highly recommend it uh, as a great read for anyone who is into that sort of thing. We they will not link those in the show notes. They, 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 aren't, they aren't quite fit for showbiz. 
Um, but the point is the Fed is changing its tune to acknowledge that the need for stimulus in the economy has shrunk and that the risks from inflation are growing. And this was also echoed in Fed Chair Jerome Powell's testimony to Congress on his renomination in early January. Yeah. And I mean, the number of kind of op-eds from conservative economists and like the I told you so's from Larry Summers and stuff are, are starting to um, accelerate, I feel like. <laughs> so that that was thing one. Update number one is that the, the December Fed minutes came out. Update number two, the December inflation numbers also came in. So you may have seen these headlines that said it's the highest inflation in 40 years. That's accurate. Yep. Annual inflation was higher than expected and the highest since 1982 at 7%. It was also higher than expected month over month at 0.5% from November to December. So that's the acceleration that we were watching out for. Yeah, that's high. Third big update, it's now becoming clearer that inflation is a global phenomenon, at least across the developed world. So the EU is seeing their highest inflation since the euro was introduced. The UK is seeing their highest inflation in 30 years. Canada's inflation rate has doubled since before the pandemic. Uh, and Japan, which is notorious for its weak demand and deflation over the course of the last like three or four decades, has revised its inflation estimate upward for the first time in eight years. I'm really hoping that you're going to tell us why you think this is because I've got some thoughts about like why inflation is going on and, and what's happening here. But but you're the Dartmouth economic major. So please tell us why so, this is going on. Well, I think the, the top line takeaways on this are one, inflation is real. We may be dealing with it for some time. This doesn't mean that it's a hyperinflation. This doesn't mean that it's, you know, 1925. But it's no longer a blip on the radar, which is but it's, it's you right. know, what they were talking about last summer. Right. And it is specifically not an outcome of the U.S. stimulus policies overheating the U.S. economy. Oh, right? interesting. This is a more generalized phenomenon. Because that's what those op-eds were saying. Right. So the fact that we are seeing the same thing in the EU, the UK, Canada, Japan, that's it, it's not a fiscal policy specific country specific phenomenon it's like labor supply it's supply chain crunches it's like all of these global issues things. right yeah. yeah the supply chain continues disruptions to production the pandemic not going away and and in many ways getting worse that's uh, continues to be the primary explainer for the inflation we're seeing the great resignation i don't think we've talked about the great resignation on on news and brews yeah that's that's for a later episode and and this does mean that central banks working, well, actually, let me, let me pause before I get to sort of policy prescriptions and alternatives. What, what's, what are your observations of this? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that we covered most of them, which is, I think that fiscal stimulus that came during COVID, which by the way, started during the 2020 when the Trump administration was here, the first fiscal stimulus was mm -hmm. passed. And then there was another fiscal stimulus that was passed. I, I think it staved off economic problems that we otherwise would be dealing with that I think would be bigger than inflation. Oh my gosh. We've not talked about this counterfactual, but like so, we saw unprecedented unemployment. We saw, I mean, you could have had half the companies in our country going out of business right. without that support. So I think that there's, even if it, it, it sounds like from what you're saying that like the stimulus and the U, sort of U.S. policies are not necessarily to blame for the inflation 
Yeah, you also, it, to, just to reinforce your point, and this is something we can find and link in the show notes. I saw a graph of uh, the decline and recovery of the economy across yeah. the last five or six recessions. And it's striking uh, how much quicker this, I think this was a recovery in the employment market. But yeah. we're we're somewhere between two and three million jobs below the pre-COVID uh, levels, and we didn't get back to that level after the two thousand eight recession until like five or six years down the road. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that is certainly not talked about enough. It's hard to talk about a counterfactual, although we do have somewhat of a counterfactual after the economic collapse of 2008. So I think that's one. And, and I'm glad you mentioned kind of the supply chains and the labor disruptions and sort of the lingering effects of COVID. We've talked about COVID in schools, but I mean, COVID is meaning that factories don't have enough workers and, you know, people everywhere are just Broadway doesn't have enough singers, not that Broadway drives the economy, but like, just to give you an example of like every industry imaginable is being impacted by Omicron because everybody's getting COVID and then they have to stay out of the work. And so I think there's all these, these pressures in addition to, I mean, I did see that some Biden folks are starting to talk about how they're worried that, that certain industries or companies are sort of like joining together and raising prices. And there's like some sort of not price fixing necessarily, but just like, oh, we think inflation's high, so let's just like, like have the actual reality match what people's perceptions are. I don't know if that's true, but that's certainly something else that I've been thinking about. In, in terms of policy response, this does mean that central banks, particularly if they work in coordination as they did after the 2008 financial crisis and as they have in the, the immediate response to the pandemic, they have a lot of tools to fight inflation. And we've talked about that before. But those tools come with, pretty hard trade-offs too, right? Mm -hmm. You raise interest rates, you're, you're putting a damper on growth. This means lots of wealth destruction. This means job loss. This means just general hardship and misery. Yeah. Um, the only way to mitigate this is to, in some other way, expand supply. Mm. And for that, we don't really have a great policy playbook. I mean, as we've said, and we'll say it again, it's worth saying again, any of the pandemic is going to be the best way to solve our economic woes right now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think we can come back around to that next week, but I think that is quickly becoming basically a communications challenge and something yeah. that the Biden administration just needs to step up and do. But, you know, I, I do think on the true, you know, immediate measures to, to expand supply, the administration has been doing what they can, right? Getting major ports to operate 24 seven. That's an example. Um, but most of the policy solutions that target supply are much longer term, right? Investing in growing industries, uh, uh, subsidizing factories, building infrastructure, right? These are things that absolutely expand supply and the productive capacity of the economy, but take years to have an impact. Yeah. It's interesting that you went that route because as you were talking about expanding supply, I was like, this sounds a lot like build back better. Like the, the second part of the infrastructure deal that's meant to like, modernize the energy grid and create all sorts of, you know, jobs. And that's maybe a solution. Although I think since there's this kind of false tying of the the economic stimulus to the inflation that even though Mike Heslin says it's not so that that connection is being made. I think that even makes the infrastructure bill that we've talked about uh, last year even less likely. Yeah. 
So there's there's one other point here of analysis, and this this comes from a conversation I had with uh, John Stevenson, who's a friend of mine, therefore a friend of the show, mm-hmm. and he made the point that so we're we're talking about the uh, negative impacts of inflation, right? People don't like it, which is the primary reason that elected officials need to work against it. Um, but you know, it it effectively reduces wages, right? It it causes people to be able to buy fewer things, to have lower general welfare. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the point that he made was everything that people say is bad about inflation has been the normal state of affairs for low-wage workers as long as we can remember. Interesting. And I just thought that was a, a really worthwhile point. Like if you think about a minimum wage worker who is making the same now that they did 15 years ago, and you also think about the fact that Fed policy is to target 2% inflation a year, that's effectively the same thing as having a 4.5% wage increase as we've seen in the last year with a 6.5-7% increase in inflation. Right. What's the, that under, thing what's the that's underlying worrying point there? I mean, is it empathy? Is it like, what's the underlying point? It, the, the point is, what exactly is different or urgent uh, about combating inflation now that hasn't been the case for the last 10 years as we've been seeing zero interest rates, massive inflation in asset prices with continued stagnation in wages? Right there, there is a an aspect of I think a risk at least of moneyed interest driving the narrative here. It's like focusing on the candy's boots when uh, when you're overlooking the child slavery. It's a really good point actually because I I find myself slipping into this as well where I'm like oh inflation's bad yeah we should you, we should do something about that and I think what I'm hearing from you is like we need to challenge that prevailing like wisdom or lack thereof that that's out there. It's not just a Fox news thing. I mean, this is, you know, the fact that inflation is high, true. And that is bad debatable is something that I think we should, we shouldn't take on face value. The thing that's undisputable, indisputable, that's the word. Indisputable. It's indisputable is that hyperinflation is really bad. Yes. Stagflation really bad. Yes. So it's like, you we know, don't like prefixes. <laughs> like inflation right, well, sans prefixes. Okay, fine. But like prefixed inflation, bad. Inflation gets really bad when it gets to a much higher level and then it starts to get out of control. And we know that that can happen. We know that, that leads to really bad outcomes. We know that the road to hyperinflation is rapidly accelerating inflation. And so even if the current state of affairs, the current level of inflation is not hugely damaging or a step change for most people from where we've been, um, we, we still need to be vigilant. And it's something that we, it's a risk that we know still exists. It's something that we know, you know, in the twenties and thirties around the world created some really major problems uh, and we don't want to replicate that. So this is not to dismiss concerns about inflation, but just, I think something to consider in terms of putting this problem in context and seeing it from all sides. So two things to watch as we look out over the next week. Uh, First thing, the Fed is also meeting Tuesday and Wednesday of this week. 
Uh, so this is their January meeting. They will issue a statement following that meeting on Wednesday of this week. It not the full minutes already, not the full minutes, just their statement. It will probably already be out by the time you are listening to this podcast. I think the market is generally expecting now a full reduction in bond purchases. So cutting that from 100 million last month, 90 million this month, 60 million next month to zero by March. Ooh, interesting. And possibly a raising of rates either then or shortly thereafter. If they announce a quicker schedule for that tightening, or if they announce additional tightening measures, like actually starting to sell the bonds that they've bought and reduce their balance sheet, you'll see the markets dip further. For this this week, they've kind of been in limbo. The, the markets have, have gone down since the start of the year. They've, you know, the last couple of days sort of been in limbo, watching what's happening in Russia and waiting for, uh, right. for the Fed statement. Honestly, it's probably a good thing if we see the markets go down a little bit more from a global perspective huh. in that that's a sign that the Fed is is retaining their credibility as inflation fighters and right. the markets think that what they're doing will, will work. You, you've um, been using the word tightening here is another way of putting it. This fiscal stimulus is just done or being rolled back. Well, we're not talking about fiscal stimulus here. We're talking about monetary policy. Monetary policy. So fiscal policy refers to taxes and spending from the government. Okay. And, and that's controlled by Congress, right? Monetary policy refers to what the Fed does, which is controlling the money supply. There are a number of ways that they do that. Interest rates are one. This bond buying that we're talking about is another. All of these are effectively ways that they control the money supply. Increasing the money supply, uh, which either by bringing down interest rates or buying bonds, that's uh, loosening of policy. Okay. Uh, they call it easy money. Uh, if you are raising interest rates or selling off bonds, you're talking about tightening, monetary tightening. Okay. And that loosening is meant to stimulate is maybe the wrong word. Loosen, like, loosening is stimulative. Yes. Right. And, and so it's sort of like an ending is, of, no. the, of the stimulation. There's so, all kinds of like weird Fed words that they use. Like they talk about the current policy being accommodative and becoming less accommodative. Uh, they talk about a renormalizing of uh, monetary policy, which means basically getting interest rates back to somewhere around the natural growth rate of the economy, which we think is about 3%, but nobody actually knows. So all of these are like sort of code words that they use. I'm glad but you read the minutes so that we don't have to, <laughs> and that we are definitely when, not linking. Yeah. Yeah. When, when we talk about tightening, it's not just the stop of buying bonds, but then if you're tightening, we're actually talking about uh, raising rates. Interest we're rates, talking yeah. about selling off bonds. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's one thing to watch is, is the fed uh, statement this week. The second thing is what's happening for the administration, additional supply focused measures from the administration. Again, it's not totally clear what the playbook is for near term supply increase policies. I will call out one interesting set of ideas, which is uh, Derek Thompson from the Atlantic has an interesting framework around this that he calls the abundance agenda, where he's, he introduced it a couple of weeks ago in an article. He sort of goes issue by issue around climate change and energy policy and education policy and you know, sort of all, healthcare, all these different major areas of the, 
of the economy to say, what does an abundance agenda look like? One that would support ample supply, you know, restock the grocery shelves, <laughs> but, but one that, and most of these things, again, I think will take time, but he's a smart, thoughtful person. And, and uh, for anyone who's interested, I would recommend checking out both his article on that and his subsequent newsletter articles kind of laying out all the details. So he's probably talking about addressing some of these supply side challenges that are probably having a bigger impact on inflation than the various stimulus packages that have passed through Congress. Yes, I, I think it is, in my view, true that supply chain issues are having a larger impact on inflation than the increase in demand that resulted from the fiscal stimulus of the last right. couple of years. At the same time, supply chains global. And it's not really clear what the US administration can do to fix that in a meaningful way. It is clear what the Fed can do, and it is clear particularly what central banks working in, in concert can do, but that has some major downsides as well. So I think we should all be hoping that the Biden administration figures this out and figures out a way to uh, rapidly increase supply. Um, again, I think that probably has more to do with ending the pandemic than it does with supporting any particular industry. But we should all be rooting for that because that's the way to get past the inflation while maintaining the growth rate and the economic uh, expansion that we're seeing in like the real economy right now. Fascinating. That was um, about as clear as a recitation of the Fed minutes as, as uh, possible. So kudos <laughs> to you and, and thanks for, for walking me through that. Let's talk about some spicy nuggets. <laughs> spicy nugget time. So I'll start if that's all right with you. Please. Um, so we are recording on Tuesday, January 25th, which True. happens to be January 25th every year is when people worldwide celebrate Burns Night and they have burn suppers. And I think your first reaction is like, what the hell is that? So that's um, Burns capital B, not Burns like setting fires. That's like capital B, like the, the boss in the Simpsons but it's actually not named after Mr. Burns. It's named after uh, a Scottish poet named Robert Burns, who was Scotland's national bard back in the sort of late 1700s um, and until he passed away. And so what I'm guessing kind of started is, is like a mix of a commemoration of his life and, you know, poetry and, I don't know what, maybe whiskey and a joke over 200 years ago. I mean, this is again, early 1800s, uh, still continues all over the world on the evening of January 25th. Some of this I'm sure will be happening in person. A lot of it will be over Zoom, but basically it's just a night where people, I mean, sort of the local Scott will um, usually lead it. I mean, I've been to one of these in DC years ago and it was a, it was a Scottish coworker of mine who uh, happened to himself be hilarious, would basically host this at a restaurant. He'd host this Burns night and you get together and you read, you know, classic Robert Burns poetry, uh, including such greats as Selkirk Grace and Address to a Haggis. And, and other such, you know, monumental uh, works of, of poetry. 
And then there's obviously food. It's not just haggis, but like scotch eggs and other things. There might or might not be a little bit of Scottish whiskey that is consumed, hence the Lagavulin. And then I think the the most fun for me years ago when I went, and I think the the most fun for most people is there's kind of this like loose structure of the rest of the night where toasts are made to the bard himself, but then each event basically comes up with tailored speeches and toasts. And two of them are typically the address to the lassies. And of course the reply from the lassies, which in, in our case, the one that I went to was, was hilarious. Um, so Mike, I think, put it on the docket for early 2023. Let's, let's find one that we can go to and, uh, and enjoy Burns night together. Love that. I think uh, a news and brews like scotch and golf trip may be in order pretty soon too. <laughs> yeah. Except I, I don't play golf, but I'll watch you as you play golf. That works. Designated driver for the golf cart. Oh, uh, except for the scotch, but yeah, whatever. <laughs> My nugget this week is um, sort of newsy, so apologies for that, but The Economist has a podcast that's focused on U.S. issues called Checks and Balances that mm-hmm. I listen to periodically. Uh, they had an associated article in this last week's issue as well that covered the same topic, but this week's episode was about a survey they conducted about optimism and pessimism within and about the U.S. Oh, I saw this. Yeah. So they asked a bunch of U.S. voters uh, how they would rank America on a bunch of different measures. So things like, how does America stack up against the rest of the world on income inequality, on acceptance of migrants and refugees, on minority rights, on religious tolerance, on LGBTQ rights? And what they found was across the board on basically all these different wide ranging issues, Biden voters were much more likely to rank the U.S. worst or near the bottom than Trump Mm. voters. And Trump voters were much more likely to rank the U.S. at or near the top. Wow. And I think that it it kind of just struck me. Like, uh, I, I think we have always faced this issue, not always, in my own politically conscious life, which mostly started in the Bush administration, second Bush administration, we've faced this issue of Republicans trying to take up the mantle of patriotism and and sort of deny that to anyone who disagrees with their specific preferred policies, which in fact are yeah. often damaging to the country. I, I think it's it's really dangerous for liberals to buy into that. And I think the the call that I would make to liberals is to not let the identification and focus on systemic issues, which are real, seep into like revolutionary territory, right? Yeah. The fact that the fact that we have major structural problems in this country doesn't mean that the whole American experiment needs to be blown up. Doesn't mean that America's horrible in every way. Um, I, I would channel you know, a lot of the major thought influences that I've had, like John Stewart and Barack Obama and, and a lot of these big voices on the left or center left, who have consistently placed the things that we struggle for in the context of the American story. 
Mm. right? John Stewart once said, I think this was in the Daily Show days, that the story of America is one of the expansion of personal freedoms. Mm. And that he we, wrote a we, book about this, actually. Yeah, need, need to all focus on being a part of that. Um, you know, even, even Martin Luther King, right, calling on America to live up to its founding ideals, to its founding creed. I think that is a really important framing and one that we can't lose sight of because just there, there's a lot of other really bad things that happen if we, if we decide to blow the whole thing up. Um, and there's, there's a lot of real good that America's done over the years that is, is worth acknowledging as well. So that's, that's, my, that's my closing thought. Um, I, think that's I don't a know great if it's spicy. One. It's definitely a nugget. No, I, I think it's spicy. I, I found myself nodding vigorously as you were talking. And I, it just sort of reminds, I can't help but think of, of things in an international and comparative context. It just made me think about some smart person said a while back, like democracy is the, war, the worst form of government, except for every other type of mm -hmm. government. And so I think we just kind of need to like put things into context, you know, like when we're having racial equity issues, when we're, um, you know, having political division issues, like, and, and China tries to use them to bring up our, you know, problems, it's like, we are acknowledging them and dealing with them, not as fast as we should, not as systemically as we should, but like, we're sort of dealing with them and acknowledging them. And so I'd much rather be here than just about anywhere else in the world. So here, here to you, Mike, for bringing this. Um, we will link that one in the show notes because I think that's a great one. Awesome. Arrow. great conversation tonight. Yeah, good to, good to see you. Um, this, was, this was fun. This was like a throwback to around the fire pit, like really diving into some shit. So this totally, totally. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you next week. News and Brews is hosted by Mike Heslin and Errol Yabake. Our producer is Lalana Nevins. This episode was recorded Tuesday, January 25th, 2022 at 9 p.m. Eastern time. Look out for new episodes available each Wednesday on all major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening.